Well, over the, the past 75 years, traffic engineers throughout the United States and Europe have had a big, big problem. People are driving their cars way too fast. And so traffic engineers have tried all sorts of different methods. In fact, they've spent billions of dollars investing in methods to try to get drivers to slow down. They put in traffic lights and stop signs and speed bumps and digital uh, uh, speed readouts of each vehicle that drives by. They put uh, empty cop cars on the side of the road. They've tried all sorts of different things to try to get people to slow down. But as far as I know, there's one traffic slowing method that has worked better than anything else. I just learned about it this past week. It's a little something called Woonervin. Woonervin. Well, Woonervin is a Dutch word that means living street. In the late 1960s, uh, residents of the Dutch city of Delft, they got fed up with people zipping down their streets and causing accidents. And so they got so fed up that the citizens of Delft took matters into their own hands. Literally. Local residents moved their living rooms into the streets. They dragged their tables and their chairs and their couches out onto their roadways, along with their kids' bike racks and their kids' sandboxes. They built planters in the roadway and started hanging out with their neighbors right there in the middle of the street. Traffic slowed to an average speed of nine miles per hour. So it worked like a charm as the citizens of Delft turned their streets into a constantly changing obstacle course for the cars trying to drive down the road. And so as an added bonus, they also expanded their living room space by taking all their furniture out into the streets. Well, one of the most accident-prone streets in the Victor Valley is right here of just a half a mile or so from our church building. It's Air Expressway. Air Expressway constantly has people zipping up and down uh, the roadway in both directions, and accidents happen on Air Expressway quite often. And so what do you say we as a church practice a little woonervin? Uh, we drag out some couches and some chairs and tables and maybe even start holding worship services right in the middle of Air Expressway. What do you say? <laughs> well, we'd probably get killed. We better not try that. But anyway... What I was thinking this last week was this. Sometimes God creates a woonervin in our lives. Many of us move through life at one of two speeds, fast or faster. We move through life at the speed of light, doing what we want to do and going where we want to go. And all of a sudden, we have to slam on the brakes because there's a couch in the middle of our path. A couch that has been placed there by God. And so we navigate around that couch only to find a sandbag, a sandbox and a, a bike rack and, and maybe a, a planted tree. And we throw up our hands in frustration and say, God, what are you doing? What are you doing? And God answers back, Woonervin. <laughs> My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, 
As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Well, in Acts 16, verse 6, the Apostle Paul was just a few months into his second missionary journey, and he was making a beeline for Ephesus, and remember what happened. As he was making a beeline for Ephesus, the capital of that great region of Asia Minor, God put up the brakes. He put a couch in the middle of Paul's path, so to speak. Paul had this idea to reach the 300,000 people there in the city of Ephesus with the gospel of Jesus Christ because those people in Ephesus desperately needed Jesus. They desperately needed to hear the gospel, but God said no. In Acts 16, verse 6, Luke, the writer of Acts, simply tells us Paul was kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. God had turned Paul's path to Ephesus into a Woonervan, a living, breathing obstacle course. Over the next two or three years, God's obstacle course directed Paul to five cities in Greece. First of all, God put an obstacle that led him into northern Greece, the area called Macedonia. And God directed Paul's path through the cities of Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea. And then God put an obstacle in his path that directed him very quickly to the south, that southern area of Greece that we call Achaia. And he ministered to two key cities in Achaia. In southern Greece, he ministered to the cities of Athens and the city of Corinth. Then and only then was God ready for Paul to make his way to the city he had tried to make a beeline for some two to two and a half years earlier, the city of Ephesus in the province of Asia. And that's where we pick up in Acts chapter 18. Beginning in verse 18, please follow along in your Bibles. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Sincrea because of a vow he had taken. They arrived at Ephesus where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. Then he set sail from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he only knew the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogues, and when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. On arriving, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted the Jews in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. While Apollos was at Corinth, 
Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. May God bless us as we study and apply his word to our lives today. Well, after ministering for 18 months in Corinth, the Holy Spirit led Paul to return to his home church of Antioch in Syria. In all likelihood, he had already been on the road for more than three years on this second missionary journey. So it was time to go back home and and share the good news of the great work that God had done back in Galatia and there in northern Greece, Macedonia, and in southern Greece, uh, there in Achaia, or sometimes pronounced uh, Achaia. And so he was going to go home and share the good report from his missionary trip. He had traveled all this way through the Galatian cities of uh, Iconium and Lystra and Derbe and, and Pisidian Antioch. He traveled to Troas where he picked up Luke. He traveled to Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea and Athens and Corinth. And there in Corinth, God seemed to speak to him and say, Paul, it's time to go back to your home church and give them the good report. Give them the good report. Well, on the way back home, God allowed Paul to take a brief detour. Paul had delighted himself in the Lord, so God gave him the desires of his heart. Remember, it had been two years or so earlier that he had been over in Antioch of Syria, or actually Antioch, Pisidia, and he had wanted to make that beeline to Ephesus, and God had said no. The Holy Spirit wouldn't allow him to, so he had bypassed that and gone north and into Greece. And now that he was in Corinth on his way back home, God gave him permission. God gave him the green light to briefly make a stop at Ephesus where he had wanted to go for two years, possibly even longer. And so God allows him to take that detour. Well, Paul takes Priscilla and Aquila and he takes them with him to Ephesus We met them earlier in Acts chapter 18. They were Christian tent makers like Paul. Paul had lived with them and done ministry with them in Corinth. And in Acts 18 verses 19 through 21, Luke gives us just a quick summary of Paul's ministry in Ephesus. Paul says, reasoned with the Jews in the synagogue over the course of a week or two. Uh, Some of them asked Paul to stay longer, but he declined 
because it wasn't in God's plan, at least not yet. The timing wasn't right. According to verse 21, Paul promised them, I will come back if it's God's will. That's important. We shouldn't just say, I promise to do this tomorrow or next week or next year. It's conditional. If God opens the door, then yes, I will do this. If he closes the door, then I can't do this. Paul wisely says, I will be back if, if it is God's will. Well, Paul set sail from Ephesus and he landed in the port city of Caesarea. Uh, we might think that's a little odd. He comes down to here to Caesarea because that's like 300 miles south of his destination. He was going back home to Antioch of Syria. So why would he take a boat that dropped him off 300 miles or so to the south? Well, I think that question is probably answered in verse uh, 23. It says, uh, well, let's see, I think I... Skip down too far. Um, he wasn't, uh, Paul wasn't one to just quickly go back where uh, his comfort zone was. He wanted to cover as many bases as possible. And so it seems pretty clear from those verses, even though Jerusalem isn't mentioned, when it says he went up to visit the church, it probably is referring to Jerusalem. And so most scholars and those that draw these maps about Paul's missionary journeys usually have him passing through Jerusalem. And from Jerusalem, he went back to his home church in Antioch. And so he's there in Antioch. We're not told how long he was there, uh, but he was probably there for a few months. He wasn't one to let grass grow under his feet, so Paul pretty quickly decided to go back onto the mission field. And so Paul leaves for his second, or not his second, his third missionary journey. According to verse 23, Paul returned to the regions of Galatia. And if we put up that uh, next map here, this third missionary journey, you can see he's revisiting those cities where he had been on his first and second missionary journeys. And so now he's making his way through Pisidian Antioch and Lystra and Derby and Iconium for the third time. And so he's strengthening those churches, and he goes a little bit to the west in Phrygia. That was the region. It's not marked on the map, but the region just to the west of Galatia. And then God gives him the green light to do what he had wanted to do three years earlier. God gives him a green light to head west into the province of Asia, into Asia Minor, that capital city of Ephesus. And Paul must have been thrilled. Must have been thrilled. Well, meanwhile, there in Ephesus, remember Paul had left them off a year or so earlier, Aquila and Priscilla, they were holding down the fort there in Ephesus in the process of doing their missionary work. They were able to lead a God-fearing man named Apollos to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. According to verses 24 and 25, he had a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He spoke with great fervor. So once he was saved and discipled, he quickly became one of the most powerful evangelists on Paul's team. As we get into chapter 19 and verse 1, Paul finds himself there in that exact spot he had been about four years earlier. As I mentioned, he was there facing Ephesus to the west and looking north to that region where God had sent him before. This time God did give him a green light. Well, you might remember from our study of the seven churches of Revelation last year that Ephesus was the most important city in all of Asia Minor, all of that province of Asia. It was the capital city 
of the province of Asia, and it was actually one of the most important cities in the entire Roman Empire. It was a super important city. I like to describe it as kind of the New York City of the ancient world. It was located on a major trade route that connected the Middle East to Europe. Ephesus was multicultural, filled with many diverse people from around the world. As I mentioned earlier, it had a population somewhere around 300,000 people. It was wealthy, boasting a huge marketplace and banking center. And Ephesus was a religious mecca. There were temples to different gods throughout Ephesus. And the most famous temple was the temple to Artemis, also known as Diana, the goddess of fertility. And so this famous temple to Artemis, the temple Diana, actually was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was an amazing structure that took somewhere between 120 and 200 years to build. It was an amazing structure and hundreds of thousands of people from around the world would descend upon Ephesus every year in large part to see that glorious temple to Artemis. They would worship her and they would purchase her little trinkets and souvenirs, which made big money for the craftsmen and the artisans and the merchants there in town. All that to say, Ephesus was a very important and strategic city in the Roman Empire. So strategic, in fact, that the Apostle Paul ends up spending around three years ministering there. That was by far a a longer time than he spent in any other city where he ministered. And so he's there for three years. And we see in this passage we just read that during that three years, Paul was in fact able to establish a ministry beachhead reaching all of the province of Asia because a ministry beachhead had been set up in Ephesus. Look at what it says there in chapter 19, verse 10. It says, all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. And so by the time we get to Revelation, there are strong churches, or at least churches, in all seven of those key cities in the province of Asia, in large part because Paul had set up a beachhead of ministry there in the capital city of Ephesus that sent out tentacles of sorts into all those other cities in that region. Well, do you know what the last verse in the Gospel of John says, you may remember, the very last verse in the Gospel of John says this, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. We read that in the last verse of John 21, John 21, verse 25. Well, you could say almost the same thing about the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Here in the book of Acts, Luke just scratches the surface of Paul's amazing ministry. He gives us just a a few highlights, the tip of Paul's ministry iceberg. He just gives us the highlights, and so that's certainly the case when it comes to Acts chapter 19. Paul served Christ in the city of Ephesus for three years far longer than he administered anywhere else. And during that time, at least half a dozen other churches in Asia Minor are reached with the gospel. Uh, I should say cities in Asia Minor are reached with the gospel. So the details that Luke gives us here in Acts 18 and 19 must be really 
really small in comparison to all that Paul did during those three years. Paul must have done a whole lot more than Luke tells us. And so when we look at the highlights, he must have given us some of the most important things that Paul did during these three years. He gives four key highlights, and here, are, here, they, are, here they are pretty quickly. Number one, in, in verses 2 through 7, he highlights the fact that there were these 12 disciples who aren't saved. The second thing he highlights in verses 8 through 10 is that there was this shift from the synagogue to the lecture hall that took place during Paul's ministry. Number three, in verses 11 through 20, he highlights that God, through Paul, performed all sorts of extraordinary miracles. And finally, in verses 23 through 41, he highlights the fact that there was this riot in Ephesus. Now, for the sake of time, I won't touch on all four of these 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 little incidents, these highlights of Paul's ministry in Ephesus, but I do want to touch on two of them. Let's start with Paul's ministry to the 12 men in verses 2 through 7. Uh, these 12 men, it seems clear, they think they are Christians, but they're not. These 12 men are called disciples in verse 1. That would lead some to believe that these 12 men are actually saved. They're actually Christians before Paul ministers to them. But there are a couple red flags here. Number one, they don't have God's Holy Spirit. They don't have God's Holy Spirit living inside them. The second red flag is they haven't been baptized into Christ. And you look at those two realities, those two red flags, and it really does beg a couple questions. Uh, question number one, can a person be saved and not have the Holy Spirit in them? And the second question, can you really call yourself a Christian if you haven't been baptized into Christ? Those are a couple important questions. You could make the case that that second question is up for debate. There's not a single example of a Christian in the New Testament who clearly wasn't baptized, except for perhaps the thief on the cross. He couldn't be baptized. But you get past the thief on the cross, you do not find another clear example in the rest of the New Testament of someone who is a follower of Christ who wasn't baptized. And so you might try to make the case that you can call yourself a Christian if you haven't been baptized, but you don't have much of a leg to stand on because we're not given an example of an unbaptized Christian in the book of Acts or beyond. And then that second question, or actually the first question, super important as well. Can a person be saved and not have the Holy Spirit in them? Huh. Well, in a word, no. <laughs> no. How can you possibly be saved and not have God inside you? You can't. It's impossible. At the point of salvation, Jesus takes your sin out and puts his spirit in. Right? Say that with me. At the point of salvation, Jesus takes your sin out and he puts his spirit in. In and out. In and out. And out. That's what salvation is all about, right? He puts his spirit in. He takes your sin out. I don't think that's a fair trade, but that's why we call it grace. Amen? So these 12 men are called disciples of Jesus. In a sense, they are disciples. They are learners. They are students of Jesus. 
but they weren't saved. That's a reminder to us all. Many people believe in Jesus and sing to Jesus and go to church on Sundays. But when it comes down to it, they're not saved. They're not saved. They're not living in a relationship with Jesus. The Holy Spirit hasn't moved in, and their sins haven't moved out. I'd also like to point out a few things about God's extraordinary miracles. Another thing that Luke focuses on here in verses 11 through 12. Uh, Look at these verses again with me, verses 11 and 12. Luke writes, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Well, first I want you to notice the wording in verse 11. It says something very interesting that I don't want you to miss. Let me ask you this. Who is doing the miracles according to verse 11? Who is doing the miracles? God was, right? God was the miracle worker. Paul was just the vessel through which God was performing those miracles. The ESV translation gives us a little bit more literal translation of verse 11. It says it this way. God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Isn't that good? I think that's pretty cool. The creator of the universe used Paul's hands to do extraordinary miracles. That's pretty cool. Even the great apostle Paul wasn't able to do miracles on his own. His great courage had an outside source. His remarkable wisdom had an outside source. And his extraordinary miracles had an outside source. Paul wasn't the source. God was the source. Amen? God was the source. Here in Ephesus, we see God doing a unique work through Paul. These weren't ordinary miracles. They were extraordinary miracles. And so God wasn't delivering healing through aprons and and through uh, different uh, pieces of cloth like handkerchiefs through the Apostle Peter. Uh, Handkerchiefs that came from the Apostle Peter, as far as we know, weren't healing people. The same could be said about the Apostle John or the Apostle James or even that great pillar of the faith, Barnabas. None of those guys, as far as we know, were able to heal anyone by having their aprons or their handkerchiefs touch sick people or touch demon-possessed people. In fact, even Paul himself, when he was in Philippi and Thessalonica and Athens and Corinth and the other cities, as far as we know, handkerchiefs and aprons that touched him in those cities couldn't even heal sick people. This is an extraordinary work that God is doing in this place of Ephesus at this specific time for a particular unique reason. And what was that reason? Well, in all likelihood, God did these extraordinary miracles through Paul in Ephesus for two reasons. Reason number one, because Ephesus was the key to reaching hundreds of thousands of people throughout the province of Asia. And reason number two, because Ephesus was steeped in the occult. It was steeped in the occult. It was filled with pagan idolatry and sorcery. So God chose to distinguish his power 
from Satan's power. Just like when Moses stood before Pharaoh and God used him to display those many signs and those ten different plagues, God was demonstrating that there was a clear contrast between his power and Satan's power. God seems to have been doing a similar thing here in Ephesus during those three years that Paul ministered there. Which brings us to an important point to keep in mind. God does miracles every day because he is a miracle-working God. Amen? He is a miracle-working God. But in Scripture, there are three time periods where God does extraordinary miracles. He does it during the time of Moses. He does it during the time of the prophets Elijah and Elisha. And finally, he does it during the ministries of Jesus and the original 12 apostles plus Paul. And so those are the three times in Scripture where we see God doing extraordinary signs and wonders and miracles. And each of those three periods of time didn't last for more than a 100 years. So with that in mind, when we ask the question, are we as Christians living in 2022 to expect these same kinds of extraordinary signs and wonders and miracles in our day? And I think the biblical answer is no. But I believe we should pray for them. I believe we should pray that God would bring us extraordinary miracles and signs and wonders like he did in those three periods of time in Scripture. Because nowhere in the New Testament does it say God never again will display signs and wonders like he did in the days of Elijah and Moses and the Apostle Paul. I would hope and I would pray that God will do it again in our day. Amen? Four life-changing insights that I don't want you to miss today, pulling from these two great chapters, I don't want you to miss these wonderful insights. Insight number one, God's detours are woonervents, living detours. They will redirect you to strategic ministry opportunities and new friends at every turn. Well, remember that when you ask God for something, when you pray to God for something, God can give you three possible answers, not just two. Many Christians focus on the first two possible answers that God can give, yes or no. A lot of times we forget about that third possible answer, which is wait. Not yet. Wait. The timing isn't right. Wait. So God sometimes tells us that he is going to answer our prayers, but not yet. In Acts 16, Paul so badly wanted to go share the gospel in Ephesus. To Paul, it seemed like a no-brainer. Reaching Ephesus was the key to reaching hundreds of thousands of people for Christ. But evidently, God didn't think it was a no-brainer. Because he told Paul, not now. Wait. God wanted Paul to go to Ephesus, but not yet. First, he needed Paul to share the gospel and plant churches in Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea and Athens and Corinth. As a result, many people were saved. Five books of the New Testament ended up being written because he went to those churches in Greece that God redirected him to. 
And he picked up new ministry partners along the way, including Luke, who went on to write two books of the New Testament, including the one we're studying today, the book of Acts. Aquila and Priscilla were picked up along the way, along with Apollos and many others. So when God tells you to wait, don't spend time sulking. God is redirecting you on a strategic detour that will offer you new ministry opportunities and friendships that you otherwise wouldn't have had. Trust God's detours. When God gives you a wunervin, say, thank you, Lord, and go ahead and start that obstacle course. Insight number two, when you are in the center of God's will, trusting, loving, and obeying him, he will give you the desires of your heart, but he will do it in his perfect timing. God knows you and me better than we know ourselves, right? He knows us inside and out. He knows what you need and he knows also what you desire. He knows what you desire. So when your greatest desire is to bring him glory and honor, you better believe that he'll give you the desires of your heart, but it's going to be in his perfect timing, not yours. You all know the old expression, good things come to those who wait. Well, that is especially true of those who follow Jesus Christ. God will give great things to his servants who wait on his perfect timing. God has some wonderful surprises for you as you're waiting on God's blessings to come. And when the timing is right to give you what you desired, it will be so much sweeter than it would have been if God had given you the desires of your heart at the very moment you had first asked for them. Oh, his blessings will be so much sweeter if you allow them to come in his perfect timing. You'll discover that his timing is so much better than your own. Insight number three, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not saved. And if you refuse to be baptized, how can you call yourself a Christian? Never forget, Christianity isn't a matter of just believing the right things about Jesus in the Bible. Christianity is about being in a relationship with God. It's about inviting God to live inside you. It's about living for Jesus Christ. It's not just about knowing. It's about being. It's about inviting. It's about living. So if you don't have the Spirit of Christ living inside you today, it's time to change that. It's time to make a clear and definite decision to place Jesus Christ in the driver's seat of your life. Ask him to forgive your sins and take the wheel. Believe that he will do that. Repent of your sins and get baptized. If you realize you need to do that today, I would love to talk with you. Reach out to me. Reach out to us at Impact. And we'd love to talk with you and pray with you about making sure that Jesus Christ is in the driver's seat of your life today. Insight number four. God wants to do miracles through your mouth, hands, and feet. But you need to be a clean and willing vessel. Amen? I love what King David writes in Psalm 24, verses 3 through 5. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. He will receive blessing 
from the Lord. Aren't those great verses? I want you to think about this. One of the greatest blessings in the world is to be used by God in significant ways. One of the greatest blessings in the world is to allow your body to be used by God in significant ways for his kingdom. That's one of the things I love about being a Christian. I have a mouth that God uses to speak his word to others. God is able to use my mouth to share the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And people, as they hear the gospel, can accept him and and be forgiven of their sins and go to heaven someday. Uh, God uh, allows my hands to be used for him in significant ways. I can use my hands to set up for a worship service. I can use my fingers to type this very sermon that I'm sharing with you right now. God uses my hands to embrace those that are hurting and to reach out and give to someone who is in need what, what they need. God uses my feet and my legs to go wherever ministry calls. I have the opportunity to be used by God in so many significant ways. You have the opportunity to be used by God in so many significant ways. He has given you a body and you can give it back to him to be used for his kingdom purposes. Oh, God does his greatest work on earth through the mouths and legs and arms and hands and feet of his people. We are his mouthpiece. We are his hands. We are his feet. And because he is a holy God, he needs our bodies to be clean, clean minds, clean mouths, clean hands, and a pure heart. So if you truly want your body to be used by God today, just go to him in prayer and say, Father God, please cleanse me. Cleanse my mouth because I want to speak for you. Cleanse my mind because I want to think thoughts for you. Uh, Cleanse my hands because I want them to be clean and be able to be fully used by you. Cleanse my legs and my feet and cleanse my heart most of all because, Lord, I know that ultimately you've called me to have clean hands and a pure heart. Oh, God, take me and use me for your purposes and for your glory. What a blessing it was for Paul to be used by God. And we can be used by God as well, right here, where we are, where God has placed us. Oh, Lord Jesus, we come to you and we thank you for filling us and using us for your glory. We just offer our bodies to you today. Wash us clean. May our mouths be used for you. Speak through our mouths. May our minds and our hands and our legs and our feet and our heart be used for you. Lord, cleanse them and work through them, we pray, for your glory. Lord, when you give us a a, a wunderven, Lord, when you give us these obstacles that pull us away from that path we had in mind, we pray that we would take them graciously and allow you, Lord, to redirect our course to where you want us to be. And we in faith believe that when you redirect us, O God, it's because you have a better purpose and plan and because your timing is better than our timing. Help us to trust your plan. Help us to take your detours with a willing spirit and an open mind. Lord, we thank you for those unexpected detours you've given us over the course of our Christian lives. And Lord, so often we can look back and say, Lord, you introduced us to new friends along the way. 
And Lord, you gave us ministry opportunities that we would have completely missed had you not given us that detour. Thank you for what you do. We love you. We trust you. And we praise you today in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Well, it is the 4th of July weekend and One of our prayers this weekend is that God would truly bless America. Oftentimes on the Sunday closest to July 4th, we close the service by singing God bless America. And so I invite you to sing with me right now. God bless America, lands that I love. Stand beside her and guide her through the night with the light from above. From the mountains to the prairies to the ocean white with foam. God bless America, my home sweet home. God bless America, my home. Sweet home. Amen. That is one of our prayers today that God would bless this country. And I pray that our country would bless God by turning back to Him. If you have decided to make that decision to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord today, to trust in Him, to turn from your sin and put Him in the driver's seat of your life, please reach out to us right now. We'd love to talk with you and get you baptized as soon as possible. Remember, he calls you to be baptized if you're serious about following him. It's not optional. It's not up to you. If you want Jesus in charge, he says be baptized, and we'd love to help you with that decision. Reach out to us at Impact by phone or send us an email. However you choose, just reach out to us. We'd love to talk with you and pray with you today and help however we can. Well, I want to say God bless you today as you celebrate this 4th of July weekend. Thank you for being with us. May God bless you as you trust him, love him, and serve him with all your heart.